Hi, this is Mary Kay's Positivity Podcast. I'm a yoga and meditation teacher and life coach. I'm also author of several self-help books. Today I have Dan Matthews, and he was a senior vice president of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. He's also known for creating PETA's most newsworthy campaigns, including I'd Rather Go Naked Than Wear Fur ads, So he was that guy naked on the streets of New York. And he also convinced Michael Kors, Calvin Klein, and others to stop using fur, which was a major accomplishment. He is now working with Save the Chimps. And he's also author of Committed, which was his first book. And recently, Like Crazy, Life with My Mother and Her Invisible Friends, which is a remarkable and funny memoir that I just finished. So thanks for joining us, Dan. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I should tell our listeners how we met. I had a little boyfriend when I was five, six years old that I saw every day, and we were inseparable. And then my dad told me to get in the car and say goodbye to Jackie, and we moved eight hours away to Virginia. So I was raised in Virginia. But he always said that you can call Jackie, and you'll see him again, and I never talked to him again. So I was really sad about that. And then fast forward, we had a house in Virginia Beach. And Jackie's biological father actually bought the house across the street. And when Jackie went in search of his birth father, I ran into him on a date with his stepbrother. (laughs) So (laughs) that's how the story went, and that's when we reconnected. And then every time I go back to Virginia Beach, I try to see him and met you, and you are Jackie's husband. So we have a lot in common. It's strange the way the world works. You know, Jack and I, we both grew up originally in Southern California. We grew up only two towns apart, yet he and I didn't meet until in Virginia about 15 years ago. So it's funny how the world works. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Like to reconnect from New York to California to Virginia Beach. So anyway, I love those stories. And that's why I'm always talking about everybody that crosses your path. There's a reason for it. And you seem so connected with the people that cross your path. I think you are probably one of the most interesting people I've ever met. You know, when you're just drawn to someone because they have this electric energy and you are like that. And your book, it was probably the first book that made me laugh out loud like crazy. (laughs) And it was no doubt that your humor kept you sane throughout your childhood. So can you tell us a little bit about your background in life growing up? Did you ever feel different or or did it feel normal because it's all you knew? Yeah, I did always feel different. I mean, I was very lucky to have a mother who, when I was raised in the 60s and 70s, she realized I was gay, I think, before other people did. And she always told me that as the bullying started in junior high school, that I was part of this clique. I was part of this elite part of society that was more artistic and that was funny and that had a slightly different take on the world and that I should be really fortunate, feel really fortunate to be that. Of course, it wasn't as easy as all that. I used to get gay bash routinely and she always took my side mm-hmm. and I always was just the, the most incredible parent to have during that really rough era. But at the same time, we always realized no matter what our problems were, there were always animals to look after. We took in cats from the street who would be abused or mangled by neighbors and other bullies and so from the youngest age, I can recall, we were looking after animals in addition to being able to truly be ourselves. And so I think it was that experience growing up and eventually 
I think when I was 16 it was, that I finally became vegetarian. And this was before PETA was formed. This was all in the late 70s when I was a preteen and teenager. This was before the animal rights movement was anything that you heard about. It was still pretty much just adopt a dog, adopt a cat. There wasn't really protests against the fur trade yet. All of that was yet to come. And I was lucky at that age to get involved in the movement as it was just starting. And so I chose that as my life's work. And luckily, when I went to college in Washington, D.C., this brand new group called PETA had just formed a national group about two miles from where I was going to college at American University. And I would get literature from my college animal rights group. And when I graduated, they just said, could you please work here? Wow, So I started there when there was only about 10 of us. That was back in 1985. And my degree was in history. And when I went to college and I lived in, in Rome for part of my college years, I my degree is in ancient history. And growing up in Los Angeles, where you don't really have any sense of history at all, there's nothing older than 100 years old. Mm-hmm. And I always felt so much curiosity about how the world got to the place it's at right now. So I decided history would be my thing. I, I knew I wanted to be an advocate of some sorts, especially an animal advocate, And I realized there's so much that has to change in society for these movements to be effective. So that's when I decided to leave home, move to Rome, study history. And I really focused my studies on movements of the past that either succeeded or failed. Everything from Christianity, which didn't really look like it had much of a chance back in the early days, Mm -hmm. as well as women's rights and civil rights, racial justice, and and then animal rights as well. Mm -hmm. And I found in my studies, people were advocating to be vegan and vegetarian, even back in ancient Greece. It just didn't take hold until more recently in in the recent generations. So that was what I patterned my studies for to give me a little patience and insight into how to try to change society. So my mother was very instrumental in that. And she also was oddly, there was something amiss with my mom from the earliest time. She would get emotional at the drop of a hat, sometimes for reasons that were clear, other times for reasons that didn't seem to make sense at all. Mm -hmm. And we we often moved in shopping carts. We sometimes didn't have electricity. She had a hard time keeping finances together, even though she was always working at one temp job or another as a bookkeeper. Mm -hmm. And it was only after my brothers and I graduated from college, we took turns helping her get apartments and all that. And she just seemed like not helpless in the sense of an aging person being helpless, but helpless in the way that she just sometimes had these mental breakdowns. After I wrote my first book, Committed, which she a big part in and everybody thought she was the most hilarious, wild character from my times growing up, mm-hmm. I really felt it was my duty to look after her in her old age. And so I used the money from my first book, Committed, moved her in, and I got this old 1870 Victorian in in Portsmouth, Virginia, and a a big fixer-upper. And it was only after I moved her in, which was about 15 years ago, that I slowly started to realize she was having conversations with people when I would walk in the house, people that weren't there. At first, I thought it was really sweet that that's just what some people do. But as she got older, she started thinking that everybody was dead. She was lighting candles constantly for them. She started getting really morose. She started getting really nasty and she stopped wanting to leave the house. And I finally was able to lure her to the senior psych ward where they said that she was a untreated schizophrenic. And they tried the minimal amount of meds to see if it would evaporate. The voices in your head when you're schizophrenic are simply caused by an excess of dopamine in your bloodstream. 
<laughs> and which is really meditate. interesting because we want yeah. dopamine, you know. Yeah, but if you have an excess, it, and schizophrenia can be can take form in sixty different ways. It can be you hear voices. It can be that you see visions. It can mm-hmm. be that you have jealousies or things for absolutely no reason that mm-hmm. it just it occurred to you in your head that there was this person said something about you when it, in fact there was nothing said at all and so she was a highly functioning schizophrenic but when she was diagnosed i read every book on schizophrenia every memoir about mm-hmm. it so that i could learn how to deal with it and the most recent one i had read was a, a book by a neurologist who said that all of the case studies of schizophrenics are young people who were diagnosed early and put into clinical care and were monitored like that. And it said that the actual outcome of the untreated disease into old age is unknown. So I felt it was my duty because I moved the bitch in with me and had to look after her for <laughs> her last five years. I didn't just monitor her occasionally in a facility. And because she's such a funny person and mm-hmm. so witty and such a maverick in so many ways that she's kind of the perfect person to be the subject of a, of a memoir. And yeah. the fact that it blends in the attributes of onset schizoid affective and schizophrenia to be able to relay not only the, the signs, but also how best to deal with it. Like, for instance, the biggest lesson I learned is if somebody says, oh, look at that fluorescent uh, pur- purple tree over there, and there isn't a fluorescent purple tree over there, for a schizophrenic, they're actually seeing that. And so if you say, oh, you've got to come to your senses. There is no purple tree over there. You just simply say, oh, how pretty. What should we have for dinner? Yeah. You acknowledge and move on. But the common response for everybody is to correct the person, especially mm-hmm. if it's your sibling, if it's a parent, if it's a spouse. You fall into that nitpicky, come on, pull yourself together. Right. And that is the absolute wrong thing to do. You just have to acknowledge yeah. it and move on, not make a big deal out of it. Right. And then figure out what you're going to have for dinner or something instead. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Well, she was so ahead of her time to understand that. I and mean, even the way she positioned your life, that you're basically more evolved, that you're more creative, you're more interesting so that you never felt like there was ever anything wrong i love how she approached life and people in general it sounded like she was so accepting of people from all walks of life all backgrounds and saw the humor yeah and that was a real gift and especially the way things have evolved in this country in the past 50 years mm-hmm. we grew up in, in orange county california very very white affluent although we were in the poor part neglected part of costa mesa and in the inner stomach of coast of orange county mm-hmm. but whenever there was a black person whenever there was somebody from a different country whoever was there that was different the idea was oh wow what could we learn from them look how fascinating we must get to be friends with that person that's so interesting yeah rather than feel what are they doing here this isn't their place and my two brothers and i were brought up with a very big curiosity about the world outside of our own and um, it just allowed us to have so many incredible friendships through our lives. And and the fact that my mom also was defending me against bullies when I was gay and, and, mm-hmm. and, and all that. But also, I had a lot of friends and so did my brothers, whether they were gay or just outcasts for other reasons. She became the mom in the neighborhood where everybody could go and be themselves. And mm-hmm. people who had hard times of their own, whether at home or outside, she would always be a shoulder of people to either cry on or somebody to listen to. She was always really a champion. And I think a lot of that stems from the way she she grew up in orphanages during the Depression in Washington, Mm D.C. 
I believe it's most likely that her mother was far more extreme schizophrenic than she was. And there was a really awful scene and she ended up in orphanages and foster homes when she was a young child. But I think growing up in that kind of environment gave her a much different outlook toward a camaraderie with kids that were outcasts rather Mm -hmm. than trying to avoid them. And I've often heard that schizophrenia and mental illnesses can be triggered by trauma. So if she was in these orphanages and anything went wrong, that could have been a major factor. Yeah. So, wow, she's really seen it all as far as that's concerned. Well, was there a life event that totally changed how you look at the world, or were you just born this way? (laughs) Well, I think that there was certainly a moment when I was about 14 years old. So my parents split when I was about six or seven. My dad moved to Florida. My mom stayed in Southern California. Mm -hmm. And I didn't see my dad very often. We saw him during summers. We saw him for a few weeks. And my dad was really great. Both my parents are dead now. But when I was with my dad, he would want to take me and my brothers fishing. And that was just the common thing that he did. And I always felt it was a little strange. And I thought live bait, especially with something. So I'm taking a live fish, sticking a hook through his gill, dumping me in the water and hope a bigger fish is going to chomp down on him. And that's how I'll get my jollies today. (laughs) And it just felt really like I had learned the word sadistic. And I just thought, this is, this is sadism at its heart, getting off on somebody else's misery. <laughs> and I just always felt really uncomfortable about that since I can remember, actually. And when I was in eighth grade, or ninth grade, I'm sorry, I used to get beat up at school, first for being gay and then for being one of the first punk rockers in my high school. <laughs> somebody I didn't know hauled off and slugged me in the stomach, and I just had the wind knocked out of me, and I, I fell over to the ground, and I was just gasping for breath and looking up, and there was all these faces looking down, just laughing at me. And it was like, it's so sick. I don't I do to do this to to deserve this. And about two weeks later, I was on another fishing trip with my dad on a boat off of Catalina Island with a whole crew of his. And I hooked some really heavy fish and everybody thought it might be a trophy fish. And when I was able, somebody helped me land him onto the deck. And it turned out, just to be a big, ugly flounder. They're bottom feeders with two eyes on one side of their head. Right. And they instantly started laughing when they saw that it was a flounder. They hoisted him on the deck. Somebody stomped on him and pulled the hook out. And blood started oozing in his face. And everybody was standing around looking at this creature who was gasping for breath and looking at us with these two bizarre panicked eyes. And I just looked down and I thought, oh, my God, that's me. Only now I'm the bully. Yeah, <laughs> you're I, so sensitive. That's yeah, great. No, I, I just thought that's it. And so I stopped eating fish first. That's usually the last thing to go for a vegan. And then it led me to really feel like I had no business killing animals or for any reason. I just feel like the word animal, the Latin root for that word is anima. And that same word in Latin means spirit. So I think oh. we certainly have a lot of differences with different animals, but we also have a lot in common. And Mm -hmm. I think that people overlook that fact because our culture, we're pumped full of advertisements about what to eat and what to wear. And I think there's been a shift, a huge cultural shift in the past 40 years, for sure, 30 years, where people are seeing animals as independent of what their use is for us. We've learned about how the world spins because of every different animal playing their part. And we've learned how elephants mourn and how sophisticated chimpanzees are and Mm -hmm. even cats and rats and whatever other animals are very very sophisticated individuals they're not just 
things. And so I feel very proud to have played a small part in helping bring about a bit of a cultural shift through my work over 36 years with PETA and through my first book, Committed, which opens with that scene on the fishing boat. Mm -hmm. You also have a uh, scene in this book about these kids abusing pregnant cat under a bush that you saved. And that was so powerful, too. I mean, it's probably the reason why you were bullied, too, to be so sensitive to help these animals. Somebody was using you to change the world. Yeah, I think, and part of that, again, I owe it to my mom, is my mom always taught my brothers and I to pay attention to what was going on in the world and to form an opinion about it and not just bury your face in a video game or binge some reality TV show or whatever the Mm -hmm. equivalent of that was in in the 70s. We were very informed about things. And so I think it was instilled in us to give a damn about things and Mm -hmm. not in a super righteous way, but just in a way of being an informed participant in society rather than a zombie as so many people go through their lives. Right. And I think that was really helpful. And I'm the only one in the family that became an activist and an advocate. Both of my brothers are very successful in their own ways, in different ways. Uh, But yeah, it's certainly what I picked up on. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is your childhood friend, Jack, Mm -hmm. we both called Jackie. (laughs) I met Jack. I met Jack just a few months after I had moved my mom in. And I'm in this dilapidated house that the total fixer upper. I have my crazy mother living with me. I kind That's of an aphrodisiac. <laughs> right, exactly. I decided I'm probably no longer on the market. You know, so I was about 40 at the time, 42. And I met Jack and it turned out that Jack had been adopted three times when he was a child. Yeah. His mother had given him up for adoption because she was from a strict Catholic family who would not allow a daughter of theirs to be an unwed mother. Mm-hmm. He was adopted by a family that had given back as they got divorced. And then by a third family in which the father was shot down in Vietnam and then she remarried. So it turned out that he had a background very similar to my mother's. And mm-hmm. instead of finding her prickly or scary because she was a feisty 80 year old woman Mm -hmm. he actually bonded with her and very deeply very quickly and i found that you hear about this thing called an orphan's bond Mm -hmm. my mom would not allow anybody to do anything for her except for my brothers i mean she would never ever ask for help Mm -hmm. but with a fellow person who was adopted or who's an orphan that you that they'll accept it from that they've got this really tight bond and she became the pro-gay parent that jack lacked growing up because he grew up in a Catholic military family himself, and they were lovely people, but being gay was something that was mocked. It was never never something that was considered anything but derogatory. Right. So they ended up really bonding, and that's part of the big core of the book, like crazy, is, mm-hmm. is how these different people come together at a later part in their life when you just think that there's no real place for you domestically. Mm-hmm. And then we all have this wonderful home life where Jack being a production designer for indie films and very, very handy, was able to help fix the house up. He and my mom got along real well. She would help him research his movie sets, whatever era movie he was having to create sets Mm -hmm. for. And it just became a wonderful life for a good five years before she finally died. And I think the reason the book has resonated is that people, just like I say, you get to a certain part of your life, whether you're 40 or 45, 50, and you think, I guess I've peaked. There's not going to be any real new birth of a new reality to bring my life in a more fulfilling domestic situation. And it really happened like that. So it was wonderful. And we get lots of great notes. And, and I've done a bunch of podcasts about it. And it just is a, a rare, happy story 
And that's another reason why I wanted to write it. The skits memoirs are also dire and depressing. Mm -hmm. And because my mother was so hilarious, I felt this needs to be added to the genre because she's a survivor. She didn't come to drugs or alcohol. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Well, this is also being made into a movie. How did that come about? So when Like Crazy came out, it was supposed to come out in spring of 2020 and it had some really great advance reviews and I was going to be going on a book tour in the US, the UK and Australia with Simon and Schuster and then the pandemic hit mm-hmm. and the book got delayed by about 4 months I was lucky for it to come out then the book pressing plants closed it was just everything went upside down and so it came out not until August of 2020 and that was in the midst of the pandemic and there was almost nothing you could do to promote things because the stores were largely still closed. The media was obsessed with whatever the latest pandemic thing was. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of a bummer because I spent 10 years writing it. But it did get some really great reviews. The Atlanta Constitution and Journal named it their number one Southern book to read this fall, that fall when it oh, came that's out. Great. And, yeah. Yeah. And it's it, real simple, which is a big monthly magazine that picked it as one of their books of the year. And it, it got some decent buzz. It was not a bestseller by any means. At that time, it was the presidential election and the pandemic mm-hmm. and the, the, the George Floyd issue, the racism issues. Those, that's what everybody was reading about. This Not about schizophrenia. <laughs> it wasn't the right moment for a schizophrenia for books to come out media-wise. Right, right. But case sera, sera, at least it came out. And luckily, one of the few people who read it was a producer named Brian Yorkie. And he did a show on Netflix called 13 Reasons Why, which deals with teen suicide. But it's, um, it was it, one of the most popular shows ever on Netflix for young people because mm-hmm. it dealt with mental health issues that a lot of young people are going through. And then he also wrote the Broadway musical Next to Normal, which won not only Tony's, but won him a Pulitzer Prize. And Brian, his thing is mental health, just like my thing is animal rights. Right. And he read it and, and thought this is the schizophrenia story that needs to be brought to the masses. So he optioned it and they just uh, they hired a really talented script writer to adapt it. And I haven't seen the script yet, but they are expecting it to go into production next year. They found a director. So it either will be on Netflix or some other studio. But it, I'll believe it when I see it. But it looks like it's actually Well, happening. hopefully you'll make a cameo in it because <laughs> yeah, that you, could be fun. you would be great in it. Well, what's a fun fact about yourself that we might not know? You're a pretty um, open book, but I'm just curious. Yeah. Well, I love to see live music of all genres. Jack mm-hmm. and I, whenever we do a road trip, it's to go see some indie band, whether in Philly or Brooklyn or in Raleigh. I love- we love to just go see live music. And it could be bluegrass. It could be heavy metal. It could be just about anything. We love Casey Musgraves. We've actually hung out with her before. She's pretty incredible. Oh. The other thing is I love to cook. I cook at home at least five or six nights a week. And I shop in the Indian stores and the Chinese stores and get the most exotic spices and uh, am very, very adventurous in the kitchen. We live in Portsmouth, which is a big Navy town and a shipyard town. And most of our friends are not even kind of vegetarian, but they love coming over to our dinner parties and tasting things that they would never have imagined otherwise eating. And it broadens their tastes as well. We have these fun little eclectic parties. <laughs> in mm-hmm. fact, there's a lot of sailors from around the world who are docked here for ship repairs in Portsmouth. This last Saturday, we had a pair of Germans who were repairing their 38-foot sailboat in the harbor and ended up coming out and coming to a 
uh, after hours uh, listening to records at our place with a bunch of other friends, and it was just a blast. Yeah. Well, that's what I love about your stories is that so many people can be clicky and just go with their same group of friends, and you are just so accepting and open to everyone and just see the beautiful energy of each person you meet. It's really great. Your mom was obviously a mentor for you, but who was another real mentor in your life? I'm just curious about that because it's hard to do what you did without a mentor. Right, right. God, I've always been a real avid reader, Mm -hmm. and I read almost exclusively autobiographies or memoirs. And so... I love that. Yeah, I do too. That's like some people will watch a talk show, a late night talk show, and there'll be some celebrity on or an author or somebody who will say something insightful and I'll glean something from that. But more often than not, it's just reading books. I'm constantly reading about five books. And so Mm -hmm. I would say my mentors are other writers. Yeah. (laughs) Frankly. Yeah. And you've been an animal lover your whole life. Is there an animal that you really love or identify with and why? Yes, there are. I mean, definitely cats are the animals that I've grown up with who I've been the closest to my whole life. Mm-hmm. But I'm really fascinated by sloths. I am too. Um, <laughs> I love a they're sloth. They're so incredible. And I was in Brazil and I was on a city bus and I looked out the window and there hanging from a tree was a sloth just looking back at me. And it was very <laughs> zen. It was very like the spiritual creatures who don't really move, but that, but you can see there's a lot going on in their mind. Yeah. And then I also really chimpanzees mm-hmm. left PETA in 2021 and I work full-time now for Save the Chimps which is a sanctuary in Florida in Fort Pierce for we now have 230 chimpanzees mostly rescued from laboratories but also from roadside zoos and um the, that kills uh, entertainment me. industry yeah like why do we need and, to uh, test animals I've never understood that well luckily for chimps it's no longer chimpanzee experiments are no longer funded by the U.S. government. Jane Goodall helped win that battle as did PETA. And so that was about 10 years ago. But what do you do with hundreds of chimps who used to be used in experiments and they were bred for it and they've never been in the wild and they live into their 60s. We owe them some life as nature intended after having infected them with everything from hepatitis to AIDS to chemicals to sending them into space. And so it's beautiful to work at Save the Chimps. And if anybody wants to check out our work or yeah. uh, meet some of the chimps, go to savethechimps.org. And it's we have 12 islands. It's 12 three- to five-acre islands on which there are a group of about 15 or 20 chimps. And chimp societies are very complex. There are alpha males who are the governors of each of the communities. And nobody realizes it, but the alpha males are actually appointed by the females. They decide who is the guy that should be in charge. So it's a very interesting yeah, um, That's how it should society. be. <laughs> yeah, and that's just a wonderful place. And back in my PETA days, I would work on cases where we would pressure laboratories to close down while the government was still funding them and get scientists to back the alternatives to animal tests. And so I was on the side of helping send some chimps to this beautiful sanctuary. And so it just felt like the perfect transition to go and work full time for this place that I already knew since its inception over 20 years ago. And I just love it. Jack's been down there. Uh, we uh, Most people don't realize chimps can live into their 60s. So we got Paul McCartney to give us the song When I'm 64 by the <laughs> Beatles to use in an ad about how old chimps can live and how it can be a costly venture to have a sanctuary and to, to help us have a raise membership money. drive and raise funds. Yeah. Yeah. So people can go onto your website to donate. 
for this nonprofit. You sent me an article about how you recently saved three chimpanzees from a roadside zoo, which sounds crazy. They began like right when they got to the sanctuary with a a hug, you know? I mean, that's so powerful. It's crazy that people think it's okay to put them in these small spaces. Obviously, I'm a huge animal lover too. I love elephants because they're like one of the few animals, like if an elephant sees an alligator trying to kill a gazelle or a lion trying to kill his prey, they will actually get involved and stop it. <laughs> and I love That's that. So I mean, life goes full circle, or whatever, but the most species keep to their own and don't get involved. And I just love how they're so gentle and, and think like, us basically you know yeah elephants are totally fascinating there's a new series uh, narrated by natalie portman on national geographic about elephant communication which just debuted i think last week i'm really looking forward to watching yeah wow and and a new chimp series that debuted on netflix is also in the past week oh yeah so what kind of things do you do for save the chimps do you are you primarily fundraising or do you try to locate where there are any chimps left being abused? Do you ever hear about that now? I would think that would be over. No, my job is is not so much about that. The PETA still does a lot of investigations. And we know just from government records where the chimps still are either in um, unaccredited facilities or roadside zoos. And there's often legal hoops that you have to jump through to get them out. Mm -hmm. And all those things are going on. But my part really is to both raise funds and raise awareness about the sanctuary because we're in the middle of nowhere in Florida. Fort Pierce is kind of uh, right in the middle of the East Coast, not near any big towns. We're about an hour north of Palm Beach, but really in the boonies. And we are not open to the public aside from events for members that happen only a few times a year. We just don't have, after the chimps, what they've been through, to be gawked at every day by groups of strangers is just not something that is kosher. Right. So what I do is I, I raise funds by doing events, sometimes in the sanctuary, but more often than not in other places. Like, for instance, about 10% of the chimps like to paint. We have activities that they can do for enrichment, some of them, the different types of activities, physical activities or mentally stimulating activities, and some of them like to paint. And so I thought art by chimps is pretty fascinating. And Miami is the host to Art Basel, which is one of the biggest international art fairs anywhere in the world. Yeah. So I worked with some organizers and some gallery people and nightlife people down in Miami. And last November, on the opening night of Art Basel, we had this Art by Chimps exhibit, which featured 12 very large canvases. We, the Miami New World Symphony Center hosted us in their atrium for the launch event. And it became a huge success. It was in the New York Post. It was all over the news. People Magazine. The singer Pink ended up buying a painting. I love uh, it. Great way to make money. Yeah. Then it ended up on Colbert. And it became such a thing that we're now looking to do that as an annual event. Oh, that's Um, great. So that was one way. Another thing is the first few hundred chimps that we have came from a laboratory that was closed down in New Mexico, a government lab. And so a lot of our members are either in Florida or New Mexico, but it's been 20 years since that lab was closed down and a lot of our members there fell by the wayside. And so I organized the 20th anniversary celebration of the chimps that were rescued from New Mexico. And we did it to coincide with Belinda Carlisle's concert in Santa Fe. So she hosted it 
as a way to re-engage our members there as well as to get public support from people who weren't aware of what happened 20 years ago to kind of put us back on the map there. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of uh, chimps that are survivors of NYU's primate lab in just outside of New York City. Mm -hmm. So we had a small event last fall to raise funds for the care of those chimps. And looks like we're going to have another one this year. So really post-pandemic, my job has been getting the sanctuary national exposure and raising funds, as well as to show the abilities of some of these chimps. I think that when you see the different styles in which chimps can paint, it just immediately makes you realize, wow, they're like us in so many ways, not just physiologically or emotionally, but even creatively. Right. You got to get them to paint Jane Goodall. <laughs> right. Wouldn't right. that be cool? I mean, that it would be. That would be amazing. So, what's something you're really excited to do after these books and the movie and your work helping animals? You've covered so much ground. What's next? More writing. More writing. I've always felt like I was obliged to write, even while I was in elementary school. It was something that I felt the need to do, mm-hmm. and so. I do a book about once every 10 years, so I'll, I'll definitely have another book coming down the pike. Mm-hmm. So r- right now, my first book was just optioned as a movie as well. So right now I'm... Oh, was it really? That's insane. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, just in the, actually in the past three weeks. Wow. There's been oh. talk of it for several months, but yeah. my attitude is I'll believe it when I see it. But right. it came through, and so now I'm adapting that uh, into a treatment. So that a treatment is like mm-hmm. a, a 10 or 15 page synopsis that they use from which to write the script because mm-hmm. the book covers a lot of ground that can never make it into a feature film because there's too much. So I'm writing the treatment for the first book, consulting on the script for the second book, uh, working full-time at the Chimp Sanctuary, going to see bands and cooking exotic curries <laughs> and jerk yeah, things you and having it. fun with Jack. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's Jack. Right. Well, the first book also talked about how you were a punching bag in high school And, you know, that's something that a lot of people can resonate with. Well, I can't wait to see what you do next. I can't wait to see your movies. I've read your books. They're amazing. I really encourage everyone in the audience to buy it today. Is there anything else that you'd like to say to our audience before we tell them how to reach you? Sure. I think the big thing is the choices I made professionally in my life Mm -hmm. and even personally were things that were not mainstream and seemed completely irrational decisions to devote your life to defending animals or to writing, even though I had no connections to write books, all these things. Mm -hmm. I think what I always urge people to do is start living their life that they want to live right now. And even Mm -hmm. if you're, you can be 20, you can be 70, it doesn't matter. You should just really do what you really feel you want to do and not just give in to what the pressures are, whether from your family or even from your logical side of yourself. Mm -hmm. But you should be able to wake up every day really excited about the things you're going to do. And I think once you've done that for even a short while, things start to fall into place. And I think also, if you have a story to tell, tell it. Because for instance, I wasn't the best student in my English class. I went to this really competitive private school and I'm definitely the only published author for books. So I had a story to tell. And I just said, I'm going to do this. And I think a lot of people will say, oh, I'm not a writer. They start labeling themselves and telling themselves a story that's not even true. So that is a really good message to say. Yeah, as a follow-up to that, check out the book, The Art of Memoir by Mary Carr. I read it probably 10 times while, while writing my books. 
And it is just the best, best accompaniment to writing your personal story. That's It's a great. really, really good one. Yeah. And you also had Jeanette Walls, a best-selling author of The Glass Castle, write a blurb about your book, full of wry humor, tenderness, and compassion, which is a huge testament to your book because her, yeah, The Glass Castle is insane. I'm sure you've read that. Yes, yes, definitely. In fact, when I was first writing Committed, Jeanette was writing Glass Castle. I was at PETA and she was at MSNBC and we would send each other pages to get each other's critique back before she even was published. Oh, that's great. I love that. You just meet so many interesting people. Well, how can people get your book, get in touch with you, help save the chimps? Can you give our audience a little information? Sure. If you'd like to learn more about Save the Chimps and become our newest member, please visit savethechimps.org and you can see some of the 230 incredible individuals we have there who would love your support. If you'd like to read either of my books, they're both on Simon & Schuster. The first one is Committed and the second one is Like Crazy. If you're an audiobook person, Like Crazy is also an audiobook and uh, it's a pretty fun audiobook. We added a good number of sound effects to make it like an old-time radio show (laughs) you can find used copies of either book pretty inexpensively online or the audiobook on any place they have audiobooks that's like crazy Mm -hmm. by dan matthews and it's matthews with one t (laughs) well thank you so much for joining us today i really appreciate your time and i think everyone's learned a lot and hopefully we'll get more people out there that are saving animals and being kind to everyone Oh, thanks so much, Mary Kay. It was a pleasure to to be on. Yeah, thanks, Dan. See if you can find a comfortable position. And just keep breathing slowly, concentrating on your breath, focusing all your attention on every breath you take. Now focus on your muscles. Notice where there is tension in your body. And then also notice where your body feels relaxed. Choose an area of tension if your neck feels tight or your back feels tight and consciously allow this area to relax. Breathe in. And as you breathe out, let all the muscles loosen and just surrender this tension. Feel the area relax deeper and deeper. How can your body relax and feel more calm without needing to act on thoughts? So it helps to focus on the muscles, relaxing your muscles. When a thought comes up, just notice them and redirect your attention on the breath or the muscles relaxing. Think about releasing, surrendering. And slowly the thoughts will go away. Start to relax the muscles in your face. Unclench your teeth. Relax your jaw. Allow the stress to abandon your body. Maybe it goes back into the ground. Let go of the weight. Now breathe in and send all your love to your back, your neck, your shoulders. Breathing out, 
as you smile at them with gratitude. Be grateful for the strong, beautiful body you have. Visualize your back feeling strong and supple, not achy and painful. Breathe in and bring your attention to your heart. Exhale and let your heart feel calm, restful. Your heart allows you to live and breathe and love. Feel your wonderful heart beating, expanding with love. Let your heart relax. With every inhalation, fill your heart with love. And with the exhalation, let all the tension leave. Breathe in, letting the muscles in the face relax. And breathe out worries, tension, sadness, Release the tension around the mouth. And just become fully aware of your whole body, breathing out, breathing in again, sending love and compassion to your whole body. Now feel gratitude for every single cell in your body. Your thoughts are sending messages to every cell. So when we worry or feel anxious, the body freezes up. We must protect. Fight or flight hormone kicks in. Maybe it starts to store fat to protect you. So you need to think positively about your body, about the people around you, about your life. Express gratitude. So think about what you're grateful for. Grateful for all the beautiful animals in the world, the amazing people you meet day to day, having a roof over your head. See if you can relax even deeper. Breathing in, breathing out. Be sure to subscribe to Mary Kay's Positivity Podcast, and I hope you'll join us again soon. Namaste.